Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 3, Tabasco Part 1. The Emerald of the Southeast. Villahermosa te vistió de fiesta la naturaleza. Son tus tardes remansos tranquilos de rara belleza. Tus mujeres tienen el divino encanto de la sencillez. El Grijalba canta su canción eterna rendido a tus pies. You are hearing Tabasca native Dora Maria Perez Vidal singing Villahermosa, written by Alejandro Garcia Muñiz. All rights are owned by the RAC Recording Company and the Muñiz and Perez Estates. Born in 1933 in the Villahermosa neighborhood of Tamulte de las Barrancas, she was known in her day as La Chaparra de Oro and performed primarily in the 1950s and 60s. Chaparra is a saying or nickname in Spanish referencing someone as being short or diminutive, mostly similar to shorty in English, meant to be endearing. In this case, she was known as the Shorty of Gold, and her renditions of popular Tabascan songs would bring them national attention and popularity. Now, before we get started with today's episode, I need to do a bit of housekeeping. I recently realized that I had mentioned emailing or commenting, but never bothered to provide an email. A rookie mistake. Well, the histories of Mexico at gmail.com is now open for all your communicative needs, and I beg your forgiveness for having made such a silly blunder. Next, as far as a release schedule goes, I'm trying to have a weekly release schedule which is, at the moment, not possible, as I am currently doing everything myself while trying to hold on to a job with a boss that does not share my passion for Mexican historical facts and stories. His loss. But it does put quite a hindrance on the productivity of research, writing, editing, recording, and publishing all on my own. So if I hope to do this full-time, I'm going to need all of the help that I can get to make that happen. In the next few episodes, I should have details about a Patreon program, which will be the most effective way to accomplish the monetary goals that will make this podcast a smoother run affair. I also have various other plans and projects associated with the histories of Mexico, so do keep all ears open for those announcements. For now, expect as much as two weeks between episodes, but I am playing around with the shorter format of episodes so as to shorten the process down and release more episodes faster. But as always, emails with comments and thoughts are always welcome. Thank you for bearing through that, and now, on with the show. The first state on our list might actually be found a bit closer to home than you might think. More than a few American pantries at this very moment hold one of the top five rated hot sauces in the United States within their doors. Even if you don't like hot sauce, you can be sure to find a bottle of Tabasco sauce proudly displayed atop many a Mexican dining table. The story goes that Maryland native Edmund McClenny acquired some Tabasco pepper seeds after he moved his family to Avery Island, Louisiana in the early 1870s after the Civil War destroyed his banking business. In 1867, McClenny would experiment with his red peppers and eventually bottled and sold his resulting concoction, naming it after the pepper it featured most prominently. The problem is that the Tabasco pepper isn't clearly native to Tabasco. Capsicum frutescens is a small square bush about three feet tall by three feet wide that produces a multitude of multicolored fruits measuring only one and a half to two inches long or four to five centimeters. Its peppers hues start out as yellows and greens and mature into bright oranges and finally the red coloration it is famous for which indicates its ripeness. This little pepper packs quite the punch. 
clocking in at 30,000 to 50,000 heat units on the Scoville rating, the scale used to quantify pepper potency. For some context, the jalapeno pepper comes in at a humbling 2,500 to 10,000 heat units, a paltry amount when compared side by side to its much smaller yet deadlier cousin. The sauce itself, however, undergoes some preparation with water and vinegar to bring its Scoville rating down to a much more manageable average of 3,750 heat units. Capsicum frutensis is also a member of a global family of peppers, including varieties native to Thailand, India, and Ethiopia, where the pepper is featured prominently in traditional cooking. The pepper was discovered and likely named out of convention, and that's really the end of the connections between sauce and state. By 1870, the sauce was patented by the American entrepreneur, and the bottles began rolling into kitchens across the country. One really has to hand it to the McClenny marketing team for taking a sauce that wasn't invented in Mexico and convincing millions of people worldwide that it is a quintessential Mexican condiment. The magic of spin, ladies and gentlemen. What we are left with after the removal of such a global claim to fame is what is, at first glance, a relatively middle-of-the-pack kind of state. But what it lacks in economic luster, it more than makes up for in natural beauty, which hides a deep cultural patrimony to the people of Mexico within its emerald embrace. The lush riverlands mixed with the tropical climate of Tabasco encouraged and enabled the sedentary lifestyle necessary for complex civilizations to organize, expand, and begin trading with one another. This land gave birth to the first great cultures of Mexico and continues to hold something fascinating to see and learn for any who wish to visit it. Due to its relative obscurity during the grand scope of Mexican history, our exploration of this state will be a great way to dip our toes into some of these major yet complex plot points in the country's history and see how some states on the periphery coped with the tumultuous times faced by a fledgling Mexican nation. This will allow us to have some familiarity with the events that occur as we encounter them in our overarching narrative and let us become familiar with some of the key story beats in the many histories of Mexico. My aim in this first episode on Tabasco will be to discuss the state's general facts as well as the things to see and do if you are planning a visit to the state in the near future. This will have a glaring omission of the archaeological sites to visit in the state but those will be covered in detail in the historical episodes to follow. That will likely be in the third episode in this Tabascan series, right after the next episode where we will introduce the native tribes of Tabasco and the cultural festivals they still engage in. Hopefully these long episodes don't feel like they are dragging on, but please feel free to email or comment if you think the show would benefit from a shorter format. Now, with all of that out of the way, El Estado Libre y Soberano de Tabasco, the free and sovereign state of Tabasco, has also been referred to as the Eden of Mexico. It is nestled in the southeastern part of the nation, in the southern dip of the Gulf of Mexico that pushes the country down towards the Pacific Ocean. It finds itself bordered by the states of Campeche to the northeast, Veracruz to the west, the Department of Petan, Guatemala, to the southeast, and a coastline with the Gulf of Mexico squaring off its northern border. We can helpfully imagine the state forming the shape of an M, with the bottom points jutting into its southern neighbors, the right leg appearing a bit more ambitious than its counterpart. Covering a total area of around 25,000 square kilometers, or about 9,756 square miles, it is slightly larger than the U.S. state of Vermont and about the same size as the European country of northern Macedonia. This state first joined the Mexican Union on February 7, 1824, as the 13th of 14 states that were included in the Treaty of Córdoba, which granted the independence of Mexico from Spain. Yet this Eden would see a turbulent few decades with not one, but three whole revolutions against the central government between 1841 and 1847, with various smaller political coups flaring up all throughout these 
quote-unquote official revolutions. We will absolutely talk about the three republics of Tabasco and how they help color in the bigger picture of how all the states in Mexico, big and small, would come to be affected by the political battle royales occurring in the capital during these revolutionary times in Mexican history. The Tabascan people, meanwhile, number nearly 2.5 million inhabitants spread out over 17 municipalities. Out of the 32 states, Tabasco ranks as 20th and 24th largest by population and area respectively. However, it is the 13th most populated by area density and 14th in gross domestic product. Its GDP per capita, or the purchasing power of the country, and an indicator of its people's living standards, is ranked at a respectable 11th by its size. So it is neither the biggest nor the smallest state, but sits among the upper half of the pack as far as economic capabilities and production given its area. Like I said, the numbers paint a pretty middle-of-the-road kind of state. The 17 municipalities of Tabasco, however, are anything but middle-of-the-road. They are split into five unofficial subregions, which may prove helpful in framing where everything else is in the state. We start with El Centro, as its name implies, in the middle, and comprising majorly of the capital at Villahermosa and the municipalities of Nacajuac and Jalpa de Mendez, just north of Villahermosa. If we imagine our M shape, El Centro would be in the middle and slightly to the right in the open space made by the two lines coming down from either point to meet in the middle. La Sierra, or the mountains, is to the south of El Centro and contains the municipalities of Jalapa, Tacotalpa, and Teapa. It is called La Sierra as these areas are heavily mountainous and hold some of the highest elevations in all the state along with a multitude of caves and waterfalls. You can imagine this municipality lying just below the point on our M where we placed El Centro, following the line to the middle point at the bottom. Los Rios, or the rivers, is to the deep east, in a part of the state that stretches south by squeezing between Campeche to the north and Chiapas to the south, on its way towards its border with Guatemala. Imagine the ambitious bottom right leg of our M. This region holds Palancan, Emiliano Zapata, and Tenosique municipalities, with its defining features being the Usumacinto River network that dominates this landscape. Los Pantanos is Spanish for the swamps and lies just northwest of Los Rios and east of El Centro, where the two largest river systems in Mexico meet creating an enormous zone of wetlands bordering the Gulf Coast and Campeche, made up by the municipalities of Centla, Jonuta, and Macuspana. It would be located on the top right point of the M-shape we have been using. Finally, we come to the Chontalpa region, comprising of the remaining five municipalities found to the west of El Centro and bordering the state of Veracruz. This would make up the entire left side of our M-shaped guide, composed of Jumanguillo, Cárdenas, Comalcalco, Paraíso, and Cunduacán. Meanwhile, the river Grijalva claims supremacy over this region on its journey to meet the Gulf of Mexico in the north. These subregions represent the four principal ecosystems found in the state fairly well and you can begin to imagine which region corresponds to which ecosystem. Tropical rainforest, tropical savanna, beaches, and wetlands. The rainforest dominates the landscape, thanks to the abundant rainfall that's dumped on the state every year. In its wettest month of September, the state can receive as much as a foot of rain, or 30 centimeters, crashing down on its head causing widespread flooding in all the low-lying plains and rivers. This cycle of flooded plains depositing nutrients into the sediment was a boon that helped the earliest people of the region establish permanent settlements. However, the climactic changes we are experiencing in present day, coupled with modern farming practices and population growths, has caused the overflowing of the rivers to become, ironically, detrimental to the production of food transforming this once king of food production 
into another hungry commoner. Much of what used to be rainforest has been overexploited through decades of logging, coupled with slash and burn agriculture, further adding to the overflooding issue. Trees that once helped regulate floodwaters would only increase the severity and frequency of flooding upon their removal. The rainforest that did survive the hardwood industry is mostly found in the municipalities of Tenosique and Balancan, deep in the eastern interior, Macuspana, Teapa, Tacotalpa to the south, and Cárdenas and Jumanguillo in the west. These ancient rainforests are populated by mahogany, cedars, various palms, willows, and the highly revered crocodile tree, the ceiba, along with various orchids and cactus species, all native to Tabasco. These hardwoods would put Tabasco on the map in the late 18th century, as its lucrative trade opportunities would draw the gaze of various foreign powers, along with all the benefits and respect to the locals such interests typically bring. Also abundant in the state are macaws, parrots, quetzals, hummingbirds, iguanas, multiple species of snakes, spider monkeys, howler monkeys, jaguars, pumas, raccoons, anteaters, deer, wild boar, and countless species of insects and amphibians, all living in the numerous forests, wetland, and wildlife reserves that Tabasco holds. In a way, though, the whole state is a nature reserve especially in the sparsely occupied municipalities around the exterior, as a majority of the population is settled in the central plains. Since most of the state is tropical rainforest or wetlands and holds few inhabitants, animals can be seen in nearly every corner for those who know how to look. For those hoping to meet the wildlife through more conventional means, the Yumka Ecological Reserve is one of dozens of these kinds of locations, yet its ideal proximity to Villahermosa is why I mention it here. It's the perfect distance for a day trip from the city and can provide ample opportunities to take in the local flora and fauna. Now, when describing the subregions, you might have noticed how all of them, save for La Sierra, seem to be mostly dominated by river plains with beaches all along the northern coast where these rivers terminate. Nearly all of the rivers that flow through the state into the Gulf of Mexico are part of either the Usumacinta or the Grijalva River basins, the largest and second largest in Mexico, respectively. The Tonal River running along the border with Veracruz is the only one not connected to these systems that would have also been important to the peoples living in southern Veracruz and western Tabasco, the Olmecs among them but all others bow to the might of the Usumacinta and Grijalva. The interconnected rivers and the water lanes these rivers created helped propel the pre-Olmaic societies into lucrative trade networks and far-off markets within the otherwise inaccessible interior. This in turn must have expanded the cultural influence of the goods they traded for and enriched the lives of whichever peoples controlled the rivers into the Gulf linking these markets to the larger Mesoamerican economy emerging along the Gulf of Mexico. The strategic importance of these river mouths would be understood and utilized by every power that came to control the region, and they would appear center stage in regional conflicts as late as the 19th century in the Atlantic theater of the Mexican-American War during the American Navy's blockade of the Gulf of Mexico. The Usumacinta River was named by the Nahual, meaning the place of monkeys, referring specifically to the howler monkeys found along its banks. It is also known affectionately as the Nile of the Maya, mainly for its importance to the locals rather than its length. As such, it travels a much longer path than its various tributaries and is actually born from a junction of the Pasión River, high in the Sierra de Santa Cruz, Guatemala. From there, it winds its way north along the border between Guatemala and the state of Chiapas until it's welcomed by the state of Tabasco at the Usumacinta Canyon in Tenosique, specifically through a point called Boca del Cerro, or Mouth of the Hill. From there, it's on into Emiliano Zapata, then Jonuta municipalities, to link up with the dozens of rivers at Los Pantanos until it finally reaches its destination after its 1,000-kilometer or 620-mile journey ends in the Gulf of Mexico, 
in the historically strategic port town of Frontera. The other major river system in the state is the Grijalva, as we have mentioned. It has been known by many names, including the Rio Grande at its origin in Chiapas, the Mezcalapa by the Mayans who controlled its flow in the area we have identified as Chontalpa, or the western part of the state, and the Tabasco River by the Chontal, who lived near its terminus point in the Gulf. It was renamed by the Spanish explorer who first discovered it, and we will talk more about Juan de Grijalva and his famous encounter with the river that bears his name in the historical episodes on the state. Although nearly half the length of its longer cousin to the east, standing at 300 miles or 480 kilometers long, the Grijalva nevertheless forms an important part of the state's ecosystem, as well as transportation and trade, today as much as in the past, thanks in part to its flowing through the capital as it winds its way towards the coast. The Grijalva then spills its bounty into the Gulf of Mexico at the port city of Frontera, along with the Usumacinta after the two join up in Los Pantanos. These rivers and the land they flow through can be teeming with life, such as freshwater gar, mojara, crocodile, a few species of turtles, frogs, salamanders, and both native and migratory waterfowl. In places where the river's waters are especially deep, one can even find manatees, with more than a few manatee reserves in the state for those looking to come face to face with the humble sea cow mostly centered in the municipalities of Jonuta and Centla in Los Pantanos. As mentioned before, there are numerous places to visit where you can view the wildlife in its natural habitat, and some places will specialize in particular species for those looking for them. We have just mentioned the manatees, but any turtle enthusiasts out there, for example, should seek out La Encantada Turtle Farm in Jalpa de Mendez, just one example of the kinds of places to look out for, but for most, the general eco-parks and reserves should fill any wildlife viewing needs. Tabasco also has a fair number of lakes and lagoons, La Polvora Lagoon being an excellent place to view a thriving lagoon ecosystem with the varied assortment of birds, fishes, and plants that inhabit it without having to go very far, as it is in fact in the middle of Villahermosa. The true wetlands of Tabasco, however, can be found in Centla and Conuta, to the east of the state, in the region we have identified as Los Pantanos. Here lies the Biosfera Reserve of the wetlands of Centla, which stands defiantly in the face of petroleum exploration by companies such as Pemax to the south, that has greatly threatened the stability of the reserve in recent years. This biosphere was created by the confluence of the Usumacinta and Grijalva rivers at a place called Tres Brazos, or Three Arms. Sitting at an impressive 302,000 hectares, or about 747,000 acres, it ranks as the largest protected wetland in North and Central America and lands among the top 15 wetlands by size in the world. To give you an idea of scale, the U.S. state of Rhode Island clocks in at a respectable 314,000 hectares, so a reserve roughly the size of Rhode Island, if that helps. The large number of lakes and lagoons also provide home to the mangrove forests. These peculiar trees have evolved the remarkable ability to survive in saltwater and thus fulfill a vital role in protecting coastal zones from erosion whilst providing a habitat for countless species of plants, fish, insects, birds, and animals who rely on the mangroves for food and shelter. Most of these mangrove colonies and the wetlands they inhabit are found in the municipality of Centla in the biosphere previously mentioned. Also found in Centla is a museum of navigation and the town of Frontera near the coast, where the Spanish settlers established the first European settlement on mainland America. Santa Maria de la Victoria, which just so happened to be built directly atop the Chontal capital of Potonchan. Centla also has plenty of beaches to explore, including Pico de Oro, Playa Azul, Miramar, and El Bosque. The rest of the coastline and beaches can also be found along the north of Paraíso and Cárdenas, which also sport mangrove forests, 
though climate change and years of overexploitation has dwindled their numbers significantly, further adding to the issues of overflooding. Finally, on the topic of ecosystems and climates, though much of the state is either beach, rainforest, or riverland, there is a sizable section towards the south that falls under the designation of tropical savanna, principally the subregion of La Sierra in municipalities like Teapa, Tacotalpa, and Macuspana, near the southern state's border. We have already mentioned how the highest elevations in Tabasco coincided with the beginning of the central mesa of Chiapas. The state located to the south is known for its mountainous heights. Along these mountains and hills lies the tropical savanna, and here we find the land dominated by grasses and bushes, as well as smaller varieties of palms, such as el jajuacate and el cocoyol. We also find an abundance of rabbits, deer, foxes, and other grassland birds and insects. The activities for the adventurous types in these areas are caving, spelunking, rappelling, and hiking through the various sulfur cave systems and waterfalls dotting the hillsides. Try Grutas de Cocona in Teapa in the south to get an idea of what there is on offer in this zone. Additionally, in this area we will find the Villa Luz Natural Park, which we will talk more about near the end of the episode on the section concerning El Pueblo Magico. As we move on to a discussion of the economy, we should keep in mind our discussion on the climate and its effect on the viability of certain industries. While the state only accounts for a mere 3.4% of Mexico's national GDP, a recent oil boom in the Ogarillo oil fields just outside of Villahermosa and in the municipalities of Macuspana has helped elevate Tabasco out of relative poverty and urbanize most of its major cities the capital principle among them. Mining of petroleum and natural gas thus makes up a large chunk of the state's GDP, although most Tabascans do not actually work in this industry. The state now relies on service-based jobs, mainly in the tourism sector, with trade and finance making up a decent chunk of the economy. Tabasco is also a big player in the Mexican cattle industry and large cattle properties can be found in the municipalities of Emiliano Zapata and Balancan. Here might be a good time to mention the at times glaring disparity between the people who live in the cities and those who live in the rural areas, as much in Tabasco as in any other state of the nation. The disparity is made all the more stark when you consider that most of these rural pueblos are actually indigenous peoples still living in the same place as they were before the Spanish arrived. It is therefore immensely important to remember that these tribes are always in the periphery, constantly being affected by the grand events taking place around them, mostly getting kicked around by the bigger entities, but occasionally flexing their political will through collective and grassroots efforts or by hitching their cause to a rising political figure or movement like they have done for generations, as we will come to see. All that said, there are still a great number of areas in the state with a long way to go as far as urbanization. While 90% of the urban areas can count on running water, sewage, and electricity coverage, rural areas face lower promises, with just 85% receiving electricity, 70% sewage services, and about 40% running water, according to the latest census in 2021. A few of the state's poorer municipalities, such as Jonuta, Tacotalpa, Centla, and Jumanguillo are some of those municipalities that lack major industry and are home to many isolated communities. It should come as no surprise then that the regions majorly composed of rainforests have the least diverse industry and thus the lowest GDP, facing the harshest realities of poverty. Tabasco's heavy rainfall also does not do much to help the situation by not allowing parts of the land to produce as much food as would be possible due to persistent and unpredictable flooding. Despite all this, there is a great dependence on corn, sorghum, and beans to feed the local populations. Cattle make up three-fourths of the meat produced in the state, with the other fourth being typical livestock, including pigs, sheep, goats, and domestic fowl. Due to its abundance of lakes, rivers, and coastlines, it should come as no surprise that Tabasco also practices fishing along its waters. 
Few areas, however, have been extensively exploited since the once thriving coastal and port city communities have seriously declined in importance since the early 1900s. Consequently, the state provides less than 2% of Mexico's total fishing. These include oysters, mojarra, shrimp, sea bass, shark, lobster, and gar. The state also produces mahogany, cedar, and other tropical hardwoods from its many rainforests. And though these industries were historically highly lucrative, nowadays they are not as well maintained. This industry, as we will discuss in the pre-independence and revolutionary era of this state, would earn a reputation for being one of the harshest and most exploitative of the industries brought in by the foreign powers that dominated business and trade in colonial and revolutionary Tabasco. The camps that housed the workers who cut the wood would be established high in the mountains, away from the general populations, where the exploitative practices used to retain good hatchet men could be kept from the public eye. The dark side of the hardwood industry will be one we shall keep our eye on as it acts as tinder for the revolutionary fire that would soon rage through the region. Nevertheless, for a time, Tabasco's trees would bring it worldwide renown and establish it as the hardwood capital of the world and jewel of the Atlantic. Tabasco, like most regions of Mexico, also has a deep culinary connection to the native peoples who originally inhabited the land. Its typical foods and music are no exception, and mainly stem from the Olmec and Mayan influence. The foods are likewise shaped by the native plants and animals found throughout the state in familiar ways, such as in the utilization of banana leaves for cooking, but also in less familiar ways, such as in the utilization of iguana meat for cooking, or in mixing beans and tortillas with fresh bananas. If you are in the north, in Paraiso or Cardenas, while you sit on the coast, you can try one of Tabasco's various seafood offerings, oysters cooked in their own shells over an open flame. Just south in Jalpa de Mendez, you can find head cheese, longanesa sausages, and cured meats called putifarra, which can also be found in Teapa in the southwest. While in Macuspana, in the interior of the country, you can find more river-based dishes made of bass, turtle, and gar. Even further south in the mountainous jungles of Tacotalpa, you can try a regional delicacy called shote, which are white river snails eaten with a typical banana sauce accompanied by cacao and corn-based drinks. This leads us nicely into chocolate, which is by far the most famous gastronomic advancement to come out of Tabasco after the sauce made by McClenny. It is utilized as an indispensable ingredient in both hot and cold beverages and dishes around the world, and even serves as a material for artwork. I don't think I need to explain to you what chocolate is, or the impact it has had on the world since its introduction to Europe in the 16th century. Tabasco proudly stands as the designated birthplace of chocolate thanks to the Olmec's extensive trading of the little bean. They used to drink a fermented beverage for religious and medicinal purposes that was once reserved for the elites and ruling families, while the bean was used as a currency. It wouldn't be until the Mayans arrived that a drink known as chilate, mixed with spices and corn puree, would be made available to the masses, and it is still made in the area to this day. Its consistency is reminiscent of oatmeal, so fair warning if you're like me and find that particular texture less than desirable. Evidence of cacao usage is found as early as 1900 BCE, and certain theories actually place its original discovery in South America, some 1500 years before that. However, the Olmec's influence and promotion is undoubtedly what elevated this bean into the place it now holds in our collective hearts. And indeed, you can find many places in Tabasco that let you experience exactly how chocolate was grown, processed, and consumed in ancient times. These factories, or haciendas as they are typically called, can be principally found along the municipalities where the Olmecs and Mayans originally produced the ancient elixirs, such as Jumanguillo, El Centro, and Comalcalco. The municipality of Comalcalco, just north of the capital in particular, 
holds Finca Cholula and Hacienda La Luz and Cacao Museum, but there are others found throughout the state. These types of places show you how chocolate is made from pod to table, as well as let you taste and buy whatever you wish. One thing you must try is pozol, which is a common cold chocolate drink served either fresh or fermented for those tipsy Olmec weekends you've always been planning with your friends. Like corn, chocolate would hold a deep connection with the gods in the eyes of the ancient cultures of Mesoamerica. And also like corn, this little bean will at some point receive its own supplemental episode where we will discuss all the religious rituals, gods, and uses the various civilizations of Mexico would have for this global megastar. At long last, we bring our focus to the state's capital and largest city, Villahermosa, which in Spanish translates to beautiful village. Founded on the 24th of June, 1564, it would only earn its lofty status after the original capital of the Viceroyalty of Tabasco, Santa Maria de la Victoria, also modern-day Frontera, was abandoned due to persistent pirate attacks. Originally named Villahermosa de San Juan Bautista, or just San Juan de Bautista, poor John would be officially dropped in 1916 by the staunchly anti-clerical governor Francisco J. Mujilca, leaving the state capital as just Villahermosa. It was known during its height of the hardwood trade as La Esmeralda del Sureste, or the Emerald of the Southeast, thanks to the various natural resources provided by its vast tracts of bountiful rainforest. Most recently, it has gained the name of the Energy City of Mexico due to its recent oil findings in the Ogarrillo oil fields in Balancan and Macuspana municipalities, just 107 kilometers west of Villahermosa marking Villahermosa as an important producer of hydrocarbon in Tabasco and Latin America. The city itself stands at an area of 32 square miles, or 61.7 square kilometers, making it around the same size as the city of Palo Alto in Northern California, which is home to Stanford University. Or for our European friends, it lands between Lyon, France, and Lisbon, Portugal, in terms of size. In terms of population, Villahermosa holds around 913,000 inhabitants as of 2021, putting it on par with those of Jacksonville, Florida, and Austin, Texas. So, as far as size and population, Tabasco proves to be no slouch compared to the other major cities and capitals of the world. The Villahermosa coat of arms is of particular interest. Gifted to the citizens of the city by King Philip II in 1598, it is divided into four distinct areas that starting from the top left and going clockwise depict the following. In the first panel or area as it is called in coat of arms terminology can be found four castle towers on a red background representative of the four precursor kingdoms to the Spanish Empire, the Kingdom of Castile, the Kingdom of Aragon, the Nazareth Kingdom of Granada, and the kingdom they established over the Mediterranean Sea, its fourth domain. The second area in the top right depicts a soldier's arm wielding a sword on a silver and gold background, meant to represent Spanish dominion over the land as well as the bounty they came seeking in the continent. The third area in the bottom right is a crowned lion on its hind legs with a protruding tongue on a red background, representing the ancient kingdom of Lyon, another of the precursor kingdoms that eventually formed into the Spanish Empire that Philip II ruled. In the fourth area, we see a native woman, maybe Aztec or Chontal Maya, wearing a traditional feathered skirt with ribbons on her forearms and flower bouquets on each hand on a silver background, possibly referencing the captives that Hernán Cortés first received upon his victory in the Battle of Centla in 1519, which we will talk about in a few episodes. It could also just be the general depiction of the natives in their distinctly non-European clothing. Finally, in the center is a depiction of the Virgin Mary, dressed in blue, in an oval frame flanked by two pillars of Hercules, tipped with globes. Written on these pillars is the Spanish motto adapted by Spanish King Charles V to symbolize the European conquest of the Americas, Plus Ultra, 
or further beyond. Upon its bestowment in 1598, this coat of arms became the oldest in the Americas, and I'm sure the Indians that lived in the area are simply thrilled to hold that distinction. The city itself is located about 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of the Gulf Coast and about 550 miles or 900 kilometers southeast of Mexico City. As mentioned previously, it was moved in 1641 due to the Pirates of the Caribbean, and its inaugural park, Fortín de la Encarnación, was built almost immediately after it was founded, and still stands to this day, currently known as the Park of the Birds, located on the corners of modern-day May 5th Street and Zaragoza at the foot of the hill La Encarnación, for those who fancy a visit. Among the most important sites to visit in Villahermosa is the monument to the indigenous chief, Dabskob. Legend has it that his name was once that of a river, but after the Spanish discovered it, they changed its name to Grijalva River, and the name of the chief would be given to the state instead. This monument will be better appreciated after hearing the episodes on the early historical events in Tabasco, but needless to say, the statue of this Chontal Mayan leader is a must-visit for any would-be tourist. Another important site to the prehistory of the area is El Parque Museo La Venta, or Museum Park of La Venta. This premier spot to visit for Olmec remains houses a collection accumulated through digs at La Venta, as well as other Olmec artifacts found throughout southern Mexico and Central America. Most impressive among this collection are the colossal heads, which are believed to depict Olmec rulers or ball game players. These heads are made of granite, and the size of them is simply awe-inspiring. We will talk more about the colossal heads during our episode on the Olmecs, but needless to say, the best viewing of them in Tabasco can be seen at La Venta Museum. General admission is around 40 pesos to foreigners at the time of recording, with typical discounts for students, teachers, and the elderly. They also offer a sound and light show like other major archaeological sites in Mexico will offer, so be sure to keep an eye out for them anywhere you go. If this type of museum attracts you, then the Museo de Antropología Carlos Pellicer in Bellahermosa, or simply the Museo Pellicer, is another place which houses a great collection of artifacts from around the state and country, accumulated and donated by Carlos Pellicer. The museum itself is named after Mexican poet, writer, professor, and politician Carlos Pellicer Camarán, who served as senator for the state from 1976 until his death in 1977. The artifacts housed at Museo Pellicer are not as focused on the Olmecs like at Parque La Venta, and will instead host a slew of other cultures from the Chontal, who dominated the area when the Spanish arrived, to the lesser-known Zoque and Chol, all the way to the famous Maya. The admission to the Museo Pellicer is 20 pesos at the time of recording. Both museums cannot be recommended enough for those with any interest in ancient Mexican history and are not hard to find and reach once in the city, with the Anthropology Museum sitting on the very banks of the Grijalva River. This mighty river, which, as we have mentioned, flows through the heart of Villahermosa, should also be visited, and sitting on the left bank of the river lies the Plaza de Armas, or Main Square, where you will find the monumental city letters, a personal favorite of mine as far as city fixtures go, as well as various monuments to heroes of Mexican and Tabascan history. Just southwest from the Plaza de Armas, you will find the first of two churches you must visit in the city, the Church of the Immaculate Conception. Known affectionately by the locals as La Conchita or the Little Conch, this neo-Gothic style church was built in 1800 making it the oldest running church in the city. While the church may seem small and unassuming compared to some of the megaliths we will encounter in other capitals, it will come to play an important role, like a good deal of Mexican churches do, as a symbol of the city and people of Villahermosa and Tabasco, especially after it suffered numerous attacks at the hands of pirates and foreign incursions. Multiple major events will take place within and around its humble walls, 
and despite its repeated attacks and destruction, it would consistently emerge to hold the first mass after overcoming whatever calamity had befallen the city. So, La Conchita. Go check it out. The other major religious center I will recommend in the capital is the Cathedral of the Lord of Tabasco, or just the Villahermosa Cathedral. This is the main Catholic cathedral of the city and central church of the Diocese of Tabasco. It is dedicated to the Lord of Tabasco, a depiction of Jesus on the cross that is specific to the people of Tabasco and especially Villahermosa. This Christ wears a crown of thorns with its hands tied in front of it. The tied hands would resonate with the campesinos or common people of Tabasco as they had recently just gotten out from under the anti-clerical regime of Thomas Carrido Canabal when the cathedral began its construction. The tied hands thus represented the faith of the people that had not been allowed to manifest openly. The current Christ that sits in the church today was made in Toluca and arrived in the city on the 4th of April, 1944. The church that stands there today is not the same one that was built on that spot originally in 1776. Back then, it was called the Church of the Lord of Esquipulas, that Lord being a black Christ brought from the people of Esquipulas, Guatemala on March 18, 1774. The church was built to house and worship this black Christ but by 1928, it was closed due to anti-religious fervor stirred up by the anti-clerical state governor, Tomas Garrido Carnaval. Through the early 1930s, the church was sacked, burned, and its religious imagery destroyed, eventually limping along as a rationalist school until it was finally put out of its misery and demolished in 1934. After this period of Garridismo in Tabasco, the Archbishop of the Diocese of Tabasco began the reconstruction of the cathedral in 1945, concluding the work in 1970. During his famous visit to Villahermosa on May 11, 1990, Pope John Paul II would finally consecrate the cathedral, making it technically the oldest in the city. Interestingly, during his inauguration, the Pope would go on to criticize the Tabascan people for having left Catholicism and joining various religious sects, along with other violations of the faith. To the Pope, the people of Tabasco might just be religiously lazy, but we will come to understand that the effects of Garrido's rule over the state would have profound social and cultural reverberations that seriously shook the religious foundations of the Tabascans that lived through it. So, Villahermosa Cathedral, make sure you do not miss it. While on the subject of churches, there aren't a lot to speak of in the greater state area, with most little towns and pueblos having at least one main square with the church to go along with it. 99% of these churches are small and, dare I say, insignificant to the common tourist, but a few stand out to me as must-visits. Outside of Villahermosa, conveniently on the way to Comalcalco, which holds the Mayan archaeological site of the same name, lie two churches in the centers of Ayapa and Cupilco, the San Miguel Archangel's Church and the Santuario de la Asunción de María. The two display a magnificent mix of neo-Gothic architecture with native Mexican-styled decorations. Another of these churches is found to the west in the municipality of Balancan, called the Iglesia del Señor de Tila. This colorful church also has a unique color palette that is unlike anywhere else in the world. Close to this church can also be found a sunflower sanctuary with acres and acres of sunflower fields to astound any nature enthusiast. The date to visit if you would like to see the sunflowers in bloom is in the end of March. Finally, closer to the center of Jalpa de Mendez, there sits the Church of San Francisco de Asís, another church decorated with colorful indigenous styles that are hard to find anywhere else in the world, let alone the country. There might not be much to these humble buildings, but the blend they depict is emblematic of Mexican culture, not only embracing the European culture that came to subjugate it, but enhancing and altering it in its own style to create something completely in its own classification. I will include pictures of the churches whenever I have a website up, 
but they are definitely places better enjoyed in person and gives one the best feeling of being in a small Mexican pueblo. Let's return to the capital, however, as we continue our tour at the Lagoon of Illusions, a protected natural park which is home to an abundance of aquatic and terrestrial species native to Tabasco. It was bestowed its name after being baptized by infamous state governor and regional strongman Thomas Garrido Canabal in 1929 as a site to host state functions and fairs. However, it was dubbed Laguna de Ilusiones because, as the story goes, the governor would mainly use it for personal parties, events, and to impress women whom he was attempting to woo. Thus, illusions given to both the people of Villahermosa, who thought they would be getting a public space, and the wooed women for reasons we can all smirk at like the mature adults that we are. Once again, the Garrido presence is hard to ignore. We have also mentioned Polvora Lagoon earlier in the episode, so I will briefly name drop it here and continue on our way. Finally, when discussing the capital, I must mention the Parque Tabasco, or the Tabasco Park, where the Tabasco Fair is held every year between the months of April and May. Dating all the way back to its first inauguration in 1786, it began as a regional harvest festival, which evolved into a cultural and gastronomic display with booths offering local dishes, desserts, and handcrafted items. A number of cultural contests are also held, including traditional dance and music competitions of varying ages and skill levels. One of the most interesting of these competitions being the tamborilero competition, a handheld drum instrument which I will describe in detail in the coming episodes. To give you an idea of the sounds these instruments produce, however, just give the intro song another listen, and you will hear the distinctive sound of the Tabascan tamborilero. Villahermosa also sports the typical city features such as parks, gyms, and bars, as well as less historical museums and parks, like the Papagayo Interactive Museum or the various water parks found around the city. While these are not necessarily historical or cultural in nature, they can still provide much to do if you are planning an extended stay in the city. Now, while Villahermosa is the largest and most important city in the state, the various municipal capitals are also major centers of culture in the remoter parts of the state. Nacajuac and Jalpa de Mendez, for example, are ideal for any wishing to be immersed in the indigenous Chontal Mayan culture. Likewise, Tenosique has a largely indigenous population and the countless little cities and pueblos that are found dotted along the river all have their own charm, though most can seem heavily impoverished to the modern eye. Balancan likewise holds various archaeological sites near its capital and Centla has been mentioned a few times for its wetland environment. Finally, in Tacotalpa, we can find a heavier Zoque influence and it is here that we find the last city we will discuss in this episode, the ever sought after Pueblo Magico. Found in the mountainous region of La Sierra in the municipality of Tacotalpa lies Tabasco's only Pueblo Magico, El Pueblo de Tapijulapa. Located about 80 kilometers or 50 miles due south or about an hour and a half drive along the freeway from Villahermosa, the name Tapijulapa in the Zoque language translates to Land of the Tamal. However, the Maya would dub it Kibalukum, which means Pitcher River. The Nahua would thus name it Place Where the Pitchers Are Broken, and that is where the complicated origin of the name sits at today. I have looked and looked, but I'm not sure why it is this particular place that the pitchers are broken. If anyone out there listening has any insight on why this place is called that, I would greatly appreciate an email or a comment. Tapijulapa lies high in the mountains as we would expect when in the Sierra region. Its town is best known for its uniform white houses with red tile roofs and cobblestone streets surrounded by beautiful, lush rainforest. This place, as I have mentioned, was originally home to the Zoques people, who found this site to be ideal for the various ceremonies and rituals involving the hundreds of caves in the zone. To most Mesoamerican cultures, caves were gateways to the underworld or other divine realms, and the Zoque were no exception. 
The location was made even more important by the proximity of the emerald green waters of the Amatan and Oxolotan rivers, both tributaries of the ever-present Usumacinta River. This Zoque community would quietly exist well into the 16th century due to the inability of missionaries to penetrate into the tropical region. It wasn't until the more adventurous Francescan order arrived and figured out the intricacies of surviving a harsh tropical existence that Zoque life was finally exposed to the European conversion efforts. They would become the only missionaries not to die as soon as they landed, and thus successfully brought their architectural influence and religion into the region. It is thanks to these missionaries that we see the uniformity in the houses of the city. And this is a feature not unique to Tapijulapa. Many pueblos mágicos in Mexico are designed and decorated in this uniform method, not in the sense that they are all white houses with red tiles, but that all the buildings have a similar style and design specific to that pueblo mágico. This is one of the most memorable aspects about any pueblo mágico visited. Tapijulapa is laid out as most Mexican pueblos founded by missionaries were, with a square and a church at its center. In this case, the church is named after an apostle, Santiago, or James in English. Found at the top of the staircase that ends the avenue called José López Portillo, named after a contemporary Mexican lawyer and politician who led the dominant political party of his time, you will find the church. This church is one of the few still-standing Viceroyalty-era religious temples that remain in Tabasco to this day. Most vestiges and reminders of the Spanish domination over the people were torn down and discarded by the Garrido years, and any that survived to that point would be endangered by Garrido's anti-clerical tendencies, of which we have already mentioned. Yet, miraculously, these architectural survivors, the church and most of the houses in the city, stood the test of time. One reason for this leniency may be due to the soft spot Garrido seems to have for this region, evidenced by the proximity of his favorite retreat in Tabasco besides the state capital, his villa at Villa Luz, which we will discuss in a moment. From the top of the steps of the church, you get a gorgeous view of the city and surrounding landscape, teeming with greenery as far as the eye can see. The church is not only beautiful, but has also been recognized by INA, or the Instituto Nacional de Antropología e Historia, the National Institute of Anthropology and History, as a historical monument, not only for its architecture, but for the fact that it also once served as a hospital and army station. Inside, you can see depictions of the standing Christ, a reclining Christ on the sepulcher, and the Virgin of Guadalupe as well as several apostle images, including the one of Saint Santiago, who lends the church his name. Now, besides the church, there is really not much to do inside the city, other than take in the beautiful sights and walk around to see its winding cobblestone streets and picturesque views, all while shopping along its various mercados and tiendas, or shops. Visitors can mostly indulge in the ecotourism activities available to the brave and adventurous in the various mountains and caves of Tacotalpa that surround Tapijulapa. Colemja, for example, is touted as the biggest ecological park of its kind in Latin America. Here you will find beautiful waterfalls to hike to, pools to swim in, suspension bridges to cross, mountain sides to rappel, rope swings to swing on, and canopy ziplining, just to name a few on the extensive list of activities you can engage in at the park. Another ecological zone, and one that may sound a bit familiar, is the Villa Luz Natural Park. It is here on Easter Sunday that the Zoque perform their Danza de la Sardina Ciega, or Dance of the Blind Fish, which we will cover in the next episode. What we won't cover are all the other things to do in the park which, apart from the activities available at Colemja, include a butterfly and botanical garden and the Tomas Garrido Canabal House Museum. The quasi-dictator of Tabasco served as its governor in the 1920s and 30s and would spend a lot of his time outside of Villahermosa and Mexico City in Villaluz. He spent so much time here, in fact, that his final remains were laid to rest on the grounds, 
where people who benefited from his social program still come and pay their respects to this equally loved and hated figure in Tabascan history. You can learn all about this divisive governor's life and exploits, as well as see some of his personal effects at this museum. Garrido's day in the spotlight of our podcast will come in a few episodes, but as you can already see, his tenure in power has had a lasting effect on the state and people that he ruled. Finally, I will mention Jardín de Dios, or God's Garden, as one of the activities to do when visiting Tapijulapa. Built by Don Isidro Cruz Martinez, these 14 hectares hold more than 300 kinds of medicinal plants painstakingly collected and cared for by Don Isidro until he passed away in 2018, after which the garden fell to his sons, Elias and Daniel Cruz Diaz, to care for. The garden has, among others, purple maguey, which some researchers believe has the properties to help fight against certain cancers, arnica for antiseptic properties, milk thistle said to help alleviate liver problems, among other more obscure medicinal plants. Now it is at this point that I must include a huge disclaimer. For while most scientific data does recognize the potential benefits of these plants or the chemicals they contain within, one should never take anything unless first ensuring that their own physiology won't have a negative reaction to whatever it is they are ingesting. I am not, I repeat, not telling you that if you have liver problems, you should go take milk thistle. Herbal and homeopathic remedies are unpredictable at best, but can be painful or even deadly in worst cases. So do take care with what you put into your body. All that being said, the plants that make this garden their home are a fantastic representation of the kinds of remedies pre-Hispanic natives were most likely using to treat all matter of ailments that might have befallen them, both physical and spiritual. On that note, the garden also boasts an important feature of Mexican culture, a temazcal, a kind of ritualistic cleansing sauna led by a shaman or spirit guide. It is held within a stone or brick igloo-like structure with a pit located in the middle where the shamans place large piping hot rocks. As the shaman pours water over the scalding stones and steam is released into the enclosed space, the shaman proceeds to chant. Meanwhile, the structure is meant to recreate a cave deep in the earth so as to engage in a symbolic journey to the underworld in order to purify the spirit. After various chants, the shaman begins to ask the participants if there is anything they would like to reveal, some personal truth or secret that will lighten the spirit with its release. This is an experience that I can say from personal account can be best described as an indigenous style confessional. One is meant to leave the temascal feeling lighter of both the body and the spirit. Since the place and surrounding of a temascal are a big factor in its quality, Experiencing a temazcal in a place as cared for and intimate as the Jardín de Dios could yield quite transformative and impactful experiences. The trip to God's garden may just be worth it for the experience of a quality temazcal. But that about wraps up our general and geographical overview on the Eden of Mexico. In the next episode, we will continue our exploration of the state by discussing the indigenous cultures that make up a large portion of its population. We will cover the things they wear, the music they play, the rituals they dance to, and the wars and alliances they participated in with their neighbors. After that, we will begin the historical account in earnest, beginning with the tribes that inhabited Tabasco before the Spaniards arrived in 1518 and the archaeological sites they left behind. After that, we will move quickly through the mostly uneventful colonial period, stopping briefly to witness a quick French incursion. And then we will pick up the narrative with the overthrow of the Spanish in 1819, almost exactly 300 years after they first arrived. During this, we will also explore the triple cessations of the Tabascan Republic from the Mexican nation that followed by tracking the life of one Jose Victor Jimenez, an early Mexican revolutionary who would hold the office of governor five times and during some of its most tumultuous events. Finally, we will discuss the volatile revolutionary period by following the life and exploits of one Thomas Garrido Canabal, he of the disillusioned women. 
a man who both pushed Tabasco into a socialist utopia, rising it from the muck of rural state into the modern era, while simultaneously oppressing and silencing any who opposed his regime. So please stay tuned for those historical entries, and we will see you next episode. Thank you for listening. Y que viva bien. Adios, and goodbye for now. Villahermosa te vistió de fiesta la naturaleza. Son tus tardes remansos tranquilos de rara belleza. Tus mujeres tienen el divino encanto de la sencillez. El Grijalba canta. <música>